This episode is brought to you by Milano Cookies. Look, sometimes that long Zen yoga class is just not in the cards. So maybe a cookie is. Pepperidge Farm Milano believes you should make some time for yourself once in a while. I know I have a particular space in my sewing room that I like to just take a few minutes every day. I sit there. I think about things. It's kind of like meditation and munching at the same time. You can get that yummy, beautiful cookie flavor. It makes it luxurious and delightful, and I always feel recharged. Milano cookies are truly a treat worthy of your me time. They're delicate and crispy with luxuriously rich chocolate in the middle. You really want to keep these just for you. So remember to save something for yourself with Pepperidge Farm Milano. The 27 Club is a new podcast about famous musicians who died prematurely and sometimes mysteriously at the age of 27. This podcast is hosted by me, Jake Brennan, creator and host of the hit music and true crime podcast, Disgraceland. Season one features 12 episodes on the life and death of Jimi Hendrix. The 27 Club contains adult content and explicit language. You can listen to The 27 Club on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Watch out for your ears. Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class from HowStuffWorks.com. And welcome to the podcast. I'm Holly Fry. And I'm Tracy V. Wilson. And it's one more Halloween episode. This is the last one. <laughs> For the folks who were like, why, where are the Halloween episodes? We've had a lot now. Yes. Uh, and this one is a little bit gruesome, and I, I feel like we need to put a trigger warning on it. It pretty heavily features some very serious violence against children. So if that's something that you're not comfortable with, or if you have younger listeners, you would rather not have exposed to that, this might be one you skip. Uh, fortunately, we do have a back catalog of Halloween episodes from previous years, and many of those are far lighter fare, like the history of Halloween candy. So perhaps hop over to one of those instead if you still want a historical Halloween fix, but think this one might be a little too intense. Uh, because today we're talking about werewolves, which may sound fun and light, but this particular thing that we're talking about centers on a series of very real attacks on children in France in the late 16th century. So there is a bit of horror involved, some possible delusion, and a cultural fear that was so deep-rooted that the people were willing to accept fairly outlandish concepts as perfectly rational explanations for events that were too troubling and upsetting to just leave unresolved with no denouement. To start off, there is a real clinical state that's called clinical lycanthropy, and this is when somebody believes that they transform into a wolf. This is a condition that's believed to be mostly a unique expression of some other underlying condition, such as bipolar disorder or schizophrenia or even really severe depression. So it's not just something that happens in isolation without other underlying psychological factors. Correct. And the first recorded case of clinical lycanthropy was written up in France in 1852. And that particular case was about an asylum patient in Nancy, France. And this report describes a man who was so completely convinced that he had turned into a wolf uh, to the point that he believed his normal human teeth had grown into those of a wolf, that his feet had morphed into a semi-cloven uh, slash paw-like state and that his body was covered in hair. And he would, when doctors came to examine him, you know, show them these features. He would pull his lips back and show them his wolf teeth. But of course, doctors saw only normal human body. Uh, and then he also insisted as part of this transition he believed he, believed he had made that he be only fed raw meat. 
France in particular seems to be a hotbed of this condition. And the most likely explanation is that at various points in history, there have been some very legitimate concerns about wolf attacks in France. Uh, I know people advocating for wolf reintroductions today like to talk about there have never been uh, incidents of wolves attacking people. This was not the case in early modern Europe. At all. Yeah. Like, you need to add in modern America at the, then the end of that sentence. Uh, so we've talked about this before, actually, in our Beast of Javedan episode, for example. So there was a very lengthy period from the Middle Ages through about the 17th century where wolves were basically public enemy number one in France. And they were creatures of great power and ferocity that were capable of just incredible carnage. So it would make sense then that in some instances, people dealing with delusional mental conditions may feel themselves to be in some way the ultimate evil or savage thing that they could think of, which culturally in France at this point had been wolves. Uh, and that is the case during this point in France that we're talking about today, as well as Tracy just mentioned, centuries on either side. Now, in 16th century France, especially in rural areas, it was unfortunately all too common for children to vanish or to be attacked by predatory animals such as wolves. And not long after the Feast of Saint-Michel in 1572, there was a young girl of age 10 or 12 who was attacked at the vineyard de Chastenoy, and the victim was strangled to death. Strips of her flesh were torn away from her arms and upper legs, and initially it wasn't clear exactly what had happened. And then we get to Gilles Garnier. Uh, this is a man who had for a long time been something of a loner. He lived in a forest north of the city of Dole. He was originally from Lyon, which was not far away, but far enough away that he was perceived to some degree as a foreigner. Uh, and he was nicknamed the Hermit of Dole, although we should clarify that he was not a hermit in the religious sense. He was merely a man who lived on the fringes of society as a recluse. Uh, but at some point, Gilles married a woman named Apollonia. And we don't really know much about her other than that. The two of them lived in a hermitage at saint Bono near uh, near Amange. And the winter after Gilles and Apollonia married was particularly harsh. The region where the city of Dole and the Serre Forest, where Garnier lived, which is called uh, Franche-Comté, experienced a very serious famine as a consequence of the lower-than-normal temperatures. So he had no livestock or land to support himself and and his bride. Still sort of trying to figure out how exactly he found and married this woman. The details on that are between scarce and non-existent. So scavenging through the winter was really just fruitless. Day and night, he would wander the countryside. He was often seen by farmers in the region looking progressively more sickly. And now before we get to the day when desperation allegedly led Gilles Garnier to commit a truly horrific act and several thereafter, uh, should we pause for a moment for a word from one of the great sponsors that keeps the show going? Hey, Holly, we have some exciting news. Yeah, I am wildly excited and uh, people will have another opportunity to watch me cry at art. <laughs> yeah, you sounded so calm and it's not a calm situation at all. Uh, our trip to Paris last year was really successful, so we're doing another similar trip this year, but this time to Rome and Florence. It's May 14th through 21st, 2020, and like last time, it is with a company called Defined Destinations, who is planning out this whole trip for us. 
Yeah, and during that week-long trip, we are going to see some of the great art that we have talked about on this show many times, including Michelangelo's David. We are going to go to Tuscany. We're going to visit St. Peter's Basilica. We are going to the Sistine Chapel. So it's going to be a fantastic trip. You can get the whole list of places that we are going and information about booking at defineddestinations.com. Scroll down to the Roman Florence trip with Stuff You Missed in History Class or come over to our social media we have posts about it there too. Hey guys, it's Bobby Bones. I host the Bobby Bones Show and I'm pretty much always sleepy because I wake up at three o'clock in the morning. A couple hours later, I get all my friends together and we get into a room and we do a radio show. We share our lives, we tell our stories, we try to find as much good in the world as we possibly can and we look through the news of the day that you'll care about. Also, your favorite country artists are always stopping by to hang out and share their lives and music, too. So wake up with a bunch of my friends on 98.7 WMZQ in Washington, D.C., or wherever the road takes you on the iHeartRadio app. So back to the story of Gilles Garnier. On that autumn day when the young girl was killed in the vineyard that Tracy spoke of at the beginning of the episode, it was allegedly Garnier who took her life. But as to whether he appeared as a wolf, we do not know. There were no witnesses. He did, however, after feeding there at the site of the murder, according to the record, take some of the girl's flesh home to also feed his hungry wife. Eight days after that first attack, he stalked and killed another girl in a meadow called La Hoop. This was near the site where the first murder had taken place. This savage event took place in the daytime in the late morning. The girl was brutally torn apart, and Gilles, according to testimony that was given later, used his hands and his teeth to kill her. And on this occasion, Garnier was actually chased away by several witnesses before he could eat any of his prey. And those witnesses would later testify that at the time of the attack, when they came upon this situation because they had heard the girl screaming, Garnier was indeed in his wolf form, and he was shredding the child with his claws. Because of his lupine appearance, though, they could not identify the perpetrator that they had happened upon in this horrific event as Gilles Garnier. They just knew it was some werewolfy thing, but they knew not who. This is not the first time or the only time in France when there was a, a, reports of a strange wolf being. Yeah. Like, like we said, France was a hotbed for this whole mm-hmm. situation. So another week later, there was another attack. This time, the victim was a boy of approximately 10 years old. The boy had been walking in a vineyard named Gredison when Garnier, again, allegedly in the form of a wolf, set upon him. And as with the first victim, the boy was strangled. Uh, Flesh from the thighs, legs, and belly of the child was eaten. And then the boy's body was brutally dismembered. Garnier, or whoever the attacker was, tore a leg from the corpse and carried it away. And in some accounts, you'll hear that both legs were taken. A fourth attack took place, as the others, a week after the previous murder. This time, it was a boy who was 12 or 13, was near the village of Perus in the Cromony Parish. And once again, this victim was dragged into the woods. The attacker seemed intent on eating him. But during this fourth attack, the child's screams actually brought attention to what was happening, and several people followed those screams into the woods. And the arrival of these additional people frightened the hermit away. We're going to call it that rather than the wolf for reasons that will be apparent momentarily. 
But unfortunately, it was too late to save the boy that had been attacked, and the child was actually dead by the time help reached him. So in this fourth attack, said, said to have been perpetrated by Garnier, the witnesses who had come to help this child they heard screaming said that he was most certainly not in the form of a wolf. He was just a normal human person. And in the documentation of this case, not only are the are the attacks described as being the utmost in horrific villainy, but the fact that Garnier attacked and was planning to eat the meat of the final victim on a Friday was especially troubling. This eschewed the religious practice of abstaining from meat on that day, which is part of Catholic obser- observation that was being observed in the rest of the community in the area. Yeah, this is like the the really damning thing. It's like not only is he a werewolf, he's doing it against our regular eating schedule of the church, uh, which seems very silly when we say it now. But this was something taken very, very seriously at the time. And so as witnesses had seen and identified Garnier, he was quickly taken into custody. This is another area of the story where there are some variations uh, in terms of how he was arrested. So in some tellings, it happened on the site as a sort of citizen's arrest, like these witnesses had subdued him and and took him to the authorities. Uh, and then in other versions, it happens after the fact, when the witnesses who had intervened in the attack went to the authorities and then they sent out people to collect Garnier. Once Garnier was in custody, things moved very, very quickly. Uh, Henri Camus was a prosecutor in the case, and his full title was Doctor of Laws, Counselor of Our Lord the King in the Supreme Court of the Parliament of Dole. And he served specifically as Prosecutor General and Public Prosecutor in Garnier's very, very expedient trial. Fifty different witnesses came forward to testify against Garnier. A lot of this... uh a lot of this was really circumstantial. People described things like seeing a wolf in the woods and then not long after also seeing Garnier. So then they would conclude that those were both the same person. Yeah. So even if you factor in the witnesses in the two attacks where people came to try to help the children involved, that was really only a few people. And this was dozens of people that were like, I did see a wolf. And later that same day, I saw Gilles Garnier in the same spot. It's clearly the same. Um, which, again, in today's forensics and science sort of criminal investigation, that would not fly. But in a very fearful uh, countryside in France, that was uh, certainly, certainly adequate testimony. So for his part, Garnier confessed to the attacks, acknowledging that indeed he did intend to eat all of his victims. And according to his story, as he was out looking for food one day, remember this happened during a harsh winter when it was pretty much scavenging in the forest to see what he could put together in terms of uh, consumable things to, to sustain himself and his wife. Gilles said that he met a specter in the woods, a ghost, but in human form. And this apparition appeared to Garnier and he told him that he could help. The specter could give Gilles Garnier a salve that would catalyze a transformation. But this mysterious ghost could only teach the starving hermit how to metamorphose into one animal, a wolf, a lion, or a leopard. So because a wolf made the most sense in the French countryside, that was what he chose. He thought that in a lupine form, he would improve his odds at finding food for himself and his wife. In some tellings of the story, it's also reported that he had children, but it's unclear whether that's actually the case. According to his confession, when he saw his first victim in the woods, he was so hungry that he just gave over to his newfound animal instincts. 
And this entire story, as outlandish as it may sound, actually fit in very well with the contemporary thinking at the time, that werewolves were really sort of similar to witches and that they had been seduced by the devil or another demon. And so it really made sense to people hearing this confession that Gilles Garnier had, in fact, traded his soul to the devil for the power to save his family. Possibly because I just went to Salem and had a had a witch tour conducted by listener Nancy. Thank you, Nancy. The whole time we're talking about this, I'm like, this sounds so much like Salem witch trial events and the types of evidence that were allowed in the court. It really is. If you read many books on werewolves in Europe, but specifically France during this time, they talk about the werewolf hysteria and it parallels so closely to witch trial hysteria in terms of just people buying in like we've discussed without real um, evidence. Right. But it just fits into their sort of fears and schema in the moment culturally that right. it's, it's almost exactly the same. So on January 18th, 1573, Gilles Garnier was found guilty of both lycanthropy and witchcraft. And according to his sentence, quote, the person of the accused shall be handed over to the master executioner of high justice and directing that he, the said Gilles Garnier, shall be drawn upon a hurdle from this very place unto the customary place of execution. And that by aforesaid master executioner, he shall be burned quick and his body reduced to ashes. He is moreover mulcted in the expenses and costs of this suit. Yeah, so basically he was dragged from the place where the trial had taken place to a stake where he was burned. And all of the very few possessions that he actually had were seized in an effort to cover the expenses of having had this whole trial. A letter from Daniel Doge to Mathieu de uh, Chalmaison, who was the dean of the chapter of Sens, summarized the entire Garnier case as follows. Quote, This Gilles Garnier, the werewolf, like a file, was a solitary who took to himself a wife and then unable to find food to support his family, fell upon such evil and impious courses that whilst wandering about one evening through the woods, he made a pact with a phantom or spectral man whom he encountered in some remote and haunted spot. The phantom deluded him with fine promises, and among other gouds, Eke taught him to become a wolf, a lion, an ounce, just as he would list, only advising that since the wolf was the least remarkable of savage beasts, the shape would be the more comfortable. To this he agreed, and received an unguent or salve, wherewith he anointed himself when he went about to shift his shape. He died very penitent, having made full confession of his crimes." Of course, the key element that was omitted from that letter and also from most casual accounts of this whole incident is that Gilles Garnier was tortured on the rack before he made his confession. On the off chance that you don't know what rack torture involves, the person being tortured is fastened to a frame that has rollers at one or both ends. They are fastened by their wrist and their ankles, and then a crank is used to turn these rollers and pull at the person's body. So it basically stretches the person's body and just causes excruciating pain. And there have been a lot of variations on designs for rack devices, including a French one that uh, added spikes on the rollers. And some are angled setups so that the victim is disoriented in addition to being just completely tortured. And we don't have the specifics on the type of rack used to elicit this confession from Gilles Garnier. But it is not difficult to imagine that even after a short time, 
one might want to confess all manner of things in order to just make such an ordeal stop. In late 1573, still dealing with citizens fearing werewolf attacks and hoping to combat the ongoing problems with lycanthropy, despite Gilles Garnier, the purported werewolf, having been executed, the government of Dole published a a decree that werewolf hunting was legal and that citizens were authorized to kill such a creature with no fear of penalty or punishment. So pikes, halberds, muskets, and sticks were all suggested as potential weapons to use for werewolf hunting. I'm chuckling a little bit just because of the idea of going after a werewolf with a stick. Yeah, or in fact, just a regular wolf, which is probably what was really the problem. (laughs) Correct. Um, Yeah, it was sort of this like really kind of desperate effort to make the citizens feel a little bit empowered to sort of take their safety into their own hands. Uh, I did not go down the rabbit hole of finding out if there were any sort of crazy and foolhardy efforts in that arena, but I'm sure it would possibly uh, foster such things. Uh, the record of Garnier's arrest, trial, and judgment was actually published the year after his death in 1574, and it's that document that's primarily used today to source information about the story. However, though it's considered an official record and it does reference court proceedings, that document is from another time when it was perfectly acceptable to legitimately list being a werewolf as a crime. And this document was also distributed in pamphlet form. It was a means to educate and warn the public about the dangers of Lugaru werewolves. So the unclouded reality of the situation is not likely truly represented in this document. In the early 2000s, a study was made of La Serre Massif, the massive forest of Serre, to, to hunt for the remains of Gilles Garnier's home. People did find the ruins of a modest dwelling that did date to the second half of the 16th century. And despite the long-told tale that the reclusive Garnier had taken pieces of his victims home to his wife, there were no signs of human remains found at that particular home. And the reality of the story of the werewolf of Dole is that Gilles Garnier was possibly mentally ill. Uh, he may have been a serial killer and a cannibal who preyed on children and used this werewolf story as a more palatable confession than the idea that he was simply a ferocious human. Or he may have used it as an attempt to try to shift the blame in the case to the devil rather than himself. If he did carry out the murders for which he was tried, it's definitely incredibly horrific. It's clear his victims probably all suffered terribly, but it's also entirely possible that the attacks were in fact the work of actual animal predators and that for some reason or another, Garnier just felt compelled to take credit for them. And then as we said before, his confession was the result of torture, so it's really hard to say whether that was the truth or not. And whether Gilles Garnier was experiencing delusions or not, whether he was a serial killer or not, he was used to some degree as a scapegoat in a time where paranormal animals were very real fears to villages in Europe, in the European countryside. He was targeted as an outsider and sort of sacrificed to quell the fears of a community about these unexplained attacks. And even if he did kill the four children involved in the case, there were other children that were killed by animals during this period. And the execution of one man was likely used in this instance to assure the community that the evil had been apprehended, even though, as we said, attacks continued. So while we know that we're werewolves are fictional, 
we do not encourage the practice of accepting the the power of werewolf transformation from strange spectral men in the woods. Yeah, just turn that offer right down. Don't do it. <laughs> so if that happens, uh, not only should you turn that down, you should go someplace safe. Get away from anyone weird in the woods offering you freaky powers. <laughs> I think that's just a good life lesson. So with that, we wish you all a happy Halloween, and we hope you have a great and safe one. And nothing nearly so scary as this happens unless it is in a controlled haunted house type environment and you know you're actually safe. And there are no murders happening. Yeah, we don't want any of that. Hey, listeners, I wanted to tell you about a new podcast from iHeartRadio called The Women, hosted by Rose Reed. It is a fascinating and deep dive interview show where Rose talks to changemakers and disruptors and she finds out what really drives them. So she will ask each of them, what was your first stand and how do you navigate success and failure? And really, what's the cost of fighting for others? These interviews are really personal and they're candid and sometimes they're a little bit crass, but they're always really enlightening. You can listen to these firebrands and take away lessons that will help you navigate your own life and forge your own path. The debut season includes women like Valerie Plame, the former CIA agent who is now running for Congress, and whistleblower and pediatrician Dr. Mona Hanna-Attisha, who exposed the Flint water crisis and became the center of a swirling, swirling amount of problems, uh, and the legendary Buffy St. Marie, 60s songwriter and activist. Uh, I have personal interest in this show because I adore Rose and I executive produce it, and I think you're really going to enjoy the way that she gets into these conversations that feel like two friends talking, and they are an absolute delight. So subscribe to The Women on the iHeartRadio app, on Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. There's a city far away. A fiction podcast. The richest, most powerful place on earth. On an epic scale. Tuman Bay. Tuman Bay. Tuman Bay. A vast empire threatened by rebellion. Power is everything. Power gives everything. We have to get away from this place or we will die too. The truth makes us strong. Tuman Bay is our destiny. History and fantasy collide. They are among us. Who? First a few, and now many. From creators John Scott Dryden and Mike Walker. The only thing I ask of you is total and complete loyalty. Now on the iHeart Podcast Network, Tuman Bay. Be sharp and die for Tuman Bay! Listen to all episodes of Tuman Bay Seasons 1 and 2 now for free on the iHeart Radio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Do you have listener mail? I do. It's not Halloween related, but we have two pieces that are, are very lovely. And as I've mentioned before, I'm trying to do a little bit more with our um, our physical mail that we get because we do get a lot of it. And we often read emails, but sometimes it's very nice to read the physical ones. Well, so it's, it's especially great for me because as I am not in our office very often, yeah. means I get to see them too. Yeah. I usually keep them in a little pile and then I yeah. show them to Tracy. We have show and tell when she arrives. Our first one is from our listener, Laurel. Uh and I'm just going to read a little bit of it because most of her uh, letter is actually really good suggestions. 
But first, I have to tell you that her penmanship is surreally lovely. It looks, as Tracy said, it looks like a font. It looks like a font. (laughs) And Laurel says, I have listened to your show for a few years. A while ago, I found this item, an Edwardian underskirt, question mark, in a pile of former Halloween costumes that a coworker was throwing out. I knew I had to save it, but I didn't know to whom I could give it. You talked on the podcast about liking historical costume, so perhaps you could find a use for it. Laurel, that was so sweet of you. And I I do want to look into this sort of how I can best restore it. Some of the lace needs to be reattached and it needs a cleaning, but I want to be gentle with it and not get too scrubby and potentially harm the textile because it is a little bit older. It's a little fragile, but it's so lovely and such a sweet thought that I just wanted to make sure we thank you on the air. Uh, Our next letter is from our listener, Claire, and I read it and it was just so delightful that I wanted to share it with our other listeners. She says, Dear Holly and Tracy, thanks so much for the awesome podcast. I listened to your recent podcast about gentlemen's clothing through the ages with the interview with Jason Merrill, and I loved it. The day after I listened to it, I saw a fellow student at school wearing a waistcoat that was too small for him, which I know drives Mr. Merrill crazy. Also, my tech ed teacher, Mr. Meister, wears a bow tie every single day. I'm sure he and Mr. Merrill would get along very well. Thanks for the wonderful podcast. Thank you for the wonderful letter, Claire. Yeah. I bet Jason would get along with anybody that wears a bow tie every day. And I I love that uh, you now recognize when people's waistcoats don't fit properly. I noticed it a lot more after talking to Jason. I mean, it's one of those things I've always kind of noticed, but I really notice it now. So I don't see people in waistcoats very often. No. No. I must be hanging out with a waistcoatier crowd than you. Uh, if you would like to write to us, you should absolutely do so. You can email us at historypodcast at howstuffworks.com. We're on facebook.com slash mistinhistory. We're on Twitter at mistinhistory. We're at pinterest.com slash mistinhistory at mistinhistory.tumblr.com. We're on Instagram at mistinhistory. If you want to read a little bit more about what we talked about today, you can go to our parent site, howstuffworks. Type in the word werewolf in the search bar and you're going to get an article written by none other than the fabulous Tracy V. Wilson. I did write that. You did. It's How Werewolves Work and it's quite a good read. Uh, if you would like to visit us on the web, you can do that at mistinhistory.com where you will find all of the episodes there have ever been of this show as well as show notes from the period that Tracy and I started on. And occasionally we'll also add in another blog post and whatnot. I owe listeners a few for various things I have asked them to write in about and I have not collated all of my information to put those together, so that is my bad. But it's coming. So come and visit us at mistinhistory.com and howstuffworks.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit howstuffworks.com. The only way is through. A new podcast in partnership with iHeartRadio and Under Armour. Players, coaches, and athletes will share intimate and personal stories of performing at the highest level. Here is Canadian heptathlete Georgia Ellenwood. The reason I won is because on that day I was confident. I need to continue that mentality to understand that I can be an Olympic athlete. I can compete with the best in the world and just perform. Listen to The Only Way is Through. Available now on the iHeartRadio app or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, everyone. I'm Katie Couric here to let you know that my podcast, Next Question with me, Katie Couric, is back for its second season. I'll be diving into some big issues like this country's devastating maternal mortality rate, the rise of astrology, 
and a little thing called the presidential election. Listen to Next Question. It comes out every Thursday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your favorite shows.